Today's readings are Psalm 139, verses 1 to 6 and 13 to 18, and John 1, verses 43 to 51. They can be found on pages 576 and 978 of the Bible's next year seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's word, Psalm 139. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Verse 13 says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. And from the New Testament, John 1, starting in verse 43. Jesus calls Philip and Nathanael. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi. You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The Word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Our God of grace, as we come into this space with different um, experiences, different emotional postures this morning, Um, some of us come with celebration as a part of our life right now. Maybe there's answered prayers, maybe there's unexpected um, news that we've had that is good, and um, others of us come and we sit here... um, either in a a neutral place or in a confused place. We've got more questions than answers. 
Some of us come in a very emotionally troubled place, sometimes feeling like we have no control over how we feel. Others of us come in here and the experiences of the last week or month or of 2014 before us was just have just been so unexpected and, and bad and, and, and difficult. And life is different now and we're trying to figure things out. We come from all these kinds of places, whether we're um, feeling healed or wounded, whether we're feeling um, happy or sad. Um, we have questions or we feel like we have new answers and we come sitting here all in the same boat, looking at you as broken individuals, as incomplete, as fragmented, and we don't want others to even know how broken we feel and how broken we are. We're more of a mess than we care to admit, and yet this is a story that we approach now that tells us we are more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever imagined. And we long for that grace to speak to us and become real for us. Would you help it? Would you help our hearts embrace the grace that you offer? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Who do you think is a really big deal in our world today? Nobody's answering out loud. I didn't, I didn't expect you to, but I just thought it's a chance for those of you who love to be heard to be heard there, but... Um, who's a big deal? Jennifer Lawrence. <laughs> Jennifer Lawrence. <laughs> you know, I, I, went, I went and explored like the top, uh, who, who has the most followers on Twitter, like Twitter accounts? You know? Yeah, Kardashians <laughs> up there. I, I mean, in some ways I was troubled because it's just so celebrity, you know, pop culture heavy. Kate per- Katy Perry... Justin Bieber, uh, Barack Obama at number third, uh, number three, um, Taylor Swift, YouTube, uh, Lady Gaga, Justin Timberlake, Britney Spears, Rihanna, Ellen DeGeneres. I mean, that's like the, we're going through like the top 10 in the millions. We're, we're at like in the 50 to 60 million followers kind of range on Twitter. And I, you know, there's people on the, in the top like 30 or 40 that I don't even know. I don't know these names, and, but they're a big deal, apparently. Cristiano Ronaldo. That doesn't mean... I mean, I, I'm innocently bringing up these names. I, don't, I have no idea who they are. Demi Lovato. Ariana Grande. Harry Styles. Is that even a real person? Harry Styles. Someone named Kaka or Kaka. That little emphasis on the second part. I'm serious, that's, that's like number 20 or something. Nial Horan, I, don't, I do not know half of these people, but they are apparently a big deal. Um, and some of you would protest, right? You'd say, that, you know, that's not how you define someone's being a big deal. Um, what about, you know, you want to get more personal. You want to say, who has been a big deal to you? Who, you know, who has made a difference in your life? And so then that comes up with a whole different set of people, you know, and your person is for sure not going to be the same person as my person if you come up with a list like that. Well, I don't know how you measure who's a big deal, who's a really big deal. 
But um, the gospel writer John, as he starts to lay out who is this Jesus, what's this all mean, how do I tell the story of Jesus, he comes really heavy in the first couple of chapters um, with, with a resounding statement of how Jesus is a big, big deal. That's a huge part of his rollout of the story of Jesus is to just emphasize right early on, boom, boom, Jesus is a huge deal. Get ready for what this is all going to mean. In our story today, it actually, it's fun because it has some confusing elements to it that um, biblical scholars are still scratching their head about and wondering, well, we don't get these references. Why is, you know, why has he got this derision towards Nazareth, you know, Nathaniel at one point? What's, what was going on under the fig tree? We don't really know, you know, um, what does it mean that Jesus called out, you're an Israelite in whom there is no deceit? And what about the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man? There's a lot of little references that scholars are like, eh, I'm not, I'm not for sure placing exactly what's going on with those. It's, it's got some confusing stuff in it. And yet, if you just kind of look at the broad sweep of what's happening here, it's clear, it's obvious, just if you have any literary sensibilities at all, you see that the, the clear markers that you do understand in this story are Jesus is a big deal. There's a barrage, a growing barrage of big claims and titles about who Jesus is that kind of come to a head even in the story that we're reading. And you see Nathaniel, as he interacts with Jesus on a personal level, you almost get a sense as the, as the interaction progresses of his eyes widening as, he, as Jesus just begins to get bigger before his eyes as they're having this conversation. And as he trans transitions from this skeptical, provincial kind of uh, what good can come from Nazareth to all of a sudden he's saying, you're the son of God, the king of Israel. You can see this transformation in Jesus becoming a big, big deal. And quite frankly, I think what Nathaniel experiences here, we desperately need. We all desperately need uh, an encounter with the bigness of Jesus to be stretched and to see, really to see our micro lenses for what they are, the micro lenses to be exposed for really limiting how we view Jesus and to be challenged that, you know, we, quite frankly, no matter who you are today, you probably need to hear that you have put Jesus in some kind of category and in some kind of box, me as well as you. And in, as soon as we do that, the second you begin to have a box and a framework through which you understand him, it's the moment be, when you begin to not actually deal with the full Jesus <laughs> in, the, in the full, real version of who he really is. And it's also usually the moment in which we're beginning to try to con control in some way what Jesus is and what he's going to mean for our life and, and define, quite frankly who he is from our own perspective. And not, not too far from that is actually beginning to say, I, I want to invite this Jesus, now defined and now categorized, to be my personal advisor <laughs> and consultant. But not into that realm that we maybe are much more familiar with from scriptures of being invited to be like a Lord and a Savior type. That's a little too messy, too broad, too hard to... Pin down. So how do we need to be, really, what is this passage in this story with Nathaniel? What is it telling us about how Jesus needs to become a big, big deal in our lives? And I would say that Jesus wants to be a bigger deal in your direction and in your 
validation and in your expectations in life. Jesus wants to become a much bigger deal in your, um, in your direction and in your validation and in your expectations. So let's look through the story from, from those points of view. So what, is it, what does it mean that Jesus is getting rolled out in this story by John as someone epic, huge, influential, haven't seen someone like this yet. John the Baptist is saying in two different instances, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So we're getting these kinds of just grandiose. Um, John starts out by saying, in the, beginning, in the beginning was the Word, and then the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. I mean, these things are getting rolled out. This is, and what does it mean that when he shows up and when he interacts with people like you and me, their names in the story are like Philip and Nathaniel, his words are, as we see in verse 43, very simple. Follow me. I mean, how do you, how do you think about those words if you imagine that the identity has just been set as someone epic, someone you've never seen something like this before? And then when he comes to you, he says, follow me. And I think it doesn't take long to, to realize that something's going to be threatened and some things are going to be nudged and even dislodged because this is a directional invitation. This is to go in a direction with your life. And quite frankly, you can't go in multiple directions. Or if you do, that's the recipe for confusion and disorientation. Inevitably, what you have to begin to grapple with if you're dealing with the real Jesus of this story is that the inertia of your and my short-sighted choices for our life direction is going to be challenged and shown for what it is and maybe dislodged. We don't like this, of course. We would prefer that Jesus would follow us and Jesus would somehow get absorbed into the path that we're making and that he would somehow kind of fall in line with our wake. I think it's, I, I don't know, maybe it's just nothing in a coincidence, but I, I think there's some connection at least that all of these f- people who are very popular on Twitter, the, the common thing that you see is that they have 20 million or 30 million followers, but who are they following Maybe 100, 200, 300. We like to be followed, right? It's easier to be followed than to follow someone else. And Jesus will have none of it. Jesus won't have it be, Jesus won't allow it to be that you are a fan, that you are an admirer and, and, and maybe have clicked on the button like for Jesus. And that in, in the scriptures, instead, what we tend to see in the Gospels is that the people who seem to be getting it right and don't seem ever to be challenged in what they are doing are the ones who, whose response to Jesus is to fall down on their knees before him and treat him like he is a lord of their life. And in a sense, fall down on their knees before him as if, they're waiting now for the ruling, for the instruction, for the marching orders. 
for what to do next. That seems, if you look at the interactions of people with Jesus, to be the people who get it right. And there doesn't seem to be much room left then to say, well, I'm going to incorporate some of Jesus' good teachings in my life, and that's really how I view him. In fact, C.S. Lewis um, put it, he put this marvelously, so let me just quote what C.S. Lewis said about this. He says, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would, be, he would either be a lunatic on, on level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Well, that is a fascinating truth that jibes with what you see about Jesus in this story and every other one. Follow me. He wants to become a big deal in the direction of your whole life. You're going to have to, if you're going to be dealing with the real Jesus, you're going to have to do what Nathaniel and Philip and all of them inevitably had to do and do business with what in your life is a big deal. You know, what in your life is getting big time and big money and big relational, emotional energy? And there is, there's difficult business all associated with that as you figure out these simple words, follow me. But he also wants to become a big deal in your validation and where you find validation. You know, uh, Oprah Winfrey, when she had her final episode of her show, when she retired the show, she, had, she stood up and gave sort of like an Oprah sermon um, and talked about, you know, all the lessons she'd learned over the years. And I found it fascinating because she's got so many insightful truths about humanity and the human condition. And she said, at one point in that speech in 2011, she said, it has worked on this platform and I guarantee you it will work for yours. Try it with your children, your husband, your wife, your boss, your friends validate them. I see you, I hear you, and what you say matters to me. Isn't that powerful? Isn't that so true? So true that we're, that we're all validation hungry in one way or another. In fact, sometimes life can just be summed up. Sometimes you have a whole day that can be summed up as you're waking up and the whole day is a jostling about for validation. Um, rarely, though, do we find um, complete enough validation. Rarely do we get anywhere close to feeling like we've got enough, like we've arrived, like now I'm validated, now I can stop jostling, now I can stop trying, stop looking in all these places for this validation. Um, there was this woman quoted in Psychology Today in 2012, Uh, on this topic of how you find your self-worth. And her name was Anneli Rufus, and she said this about her journey seeking validation. She said, at one point I was in a woman's group with uh, a few friends. We'd get together and we'd have these talks about how women are fantastic and can rule the world. One night we took turns chanting our own names loudly. 
And she said, it made me feel worse. I bring that up just because there's, you know, you can bring up any examples of this, but basically, as you try to find all of this validation through all these sources around you, especially if you try to self-validate, you're going to come up empty. When Jesus, when Jesus in this story looks at Nathaniel and says, here's an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit, he says in verse 47. And Nathanael says, how do you know me? And Jesus answers, I saw you while you were under, still under the fig tree before Philip called you. I saw you. You sense the exchange of just, you don't even know what's all going on. And yet you can feel that there's, for sure there is a level of validation and acceptance That Jesus sees him and is not running away but moving towards. I saw you and I'm still here to talk to you and to move towards you in relationship. Why is it that it's at this point that when Jesus says, I saw you, the next thing Nathaniel is suddenly comfortable with saying is, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. It's because Jesus... um, we only get a sense and we get a hint of the validation there that Jesus offers. It reminds us of Psalm 139, which we also included in the reading, where there seems to be a prayer of God's people that is positive and comfortable with the idea of God seeing all the way through me. Have you arrived at that? Has that puzzle been figured out for you, that that is this kind of God that we have? How does that puzzle work? How is it that we say we look to the great being, great powerful being, and we look forward to him seeing right through us and seeing everything down to the secrets, down to all the unseen things? How is it that you can arrive at that? Nathaniel was beginning to see it. And as the story plays out, Nathaniel would see the story unfold and see how that puzzle gets figured out. As Jesus' own mission and role in life was driving towards the point where he would take on invalidation. He would become invalid among humanity and go to the cross, spit on, insulted, killed. And why was he doing that? Except that his resume of being perfectly valid could fall on you and me. And that's, I mean, all your jostling for validity is going if to, if it doesn't end up coming to this one, this Lord, this one who gives you the mantle of his validity, you're going to be unsettled and you're going to keep going to one thing after another to find the real you, the good you, the true you, until you find it in him. He's the only one big enough and he's the only one who's given himself willingly to you and to me to raise your validity beyond what you could ever imagine, what you could ever hope. So he wants to become big in our validation. He's already getting, you're getting that hint and that sense, although the picture's not full yet with Nathaniel. You can see, well, you know, you can see sort of the full-formed validation of the cross kind of creeping in early with Nathaniel. He also wants to be a bigger deal, I think, in your 
expectations, and we see this as the story kind of comes to a close with that um, somewhat confusing quote about angels descending and ascending on the Son of Man. Um, tomorrow is going to be a holiday for, I don't know if you have to go to work, my kids don't have to go to school, and don't forget what we're celebrating and what we're looking to is but the life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And now here's somebody who had big expectations, and I, I quite frankly, I don't even know that I could, I, I know that I don't know where he even could draw the vision to get such large expectations for where he wanted and thought things should go when he would say things like these, um, these words that you've heard, and you might hear them tomorrow, um, you know, respoken and replayed for us. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. It was in August 28, 1963. You've heard those words. I bring them up because not only is it timely and not only is that a part of what this week I think means for, um, for a lot of us and some of you will be volunteering tomorrow and spending your time using that day that way but I just, I want to puzzle over how with all the blatant and just excruciating expressions of racism that were so utterly horrific in the day of Dr. King how do you explain that he could have such a lofty expectation for where things could and should Go. How do you? How does someone look at the world? And you know, we have our examples still today. To look around and to still say, "This, I want. I'm going to set my hopes and expectations here on this incredible oasis of freedom." Kind of picture. How? How does he do that? And I don't have the answer for how Dr. King necessarily did that. Except, I'm not surprised to find out that he also was a follower of Jesus, like Nathaniel. I don't claim to know everything that fed into his vision and how he came to be so hopeful, but I, I'm not surprised that he's a follower of Jesus. Because what Jesus says to Nathaniel, what he says to all of us is, is what we read in verse 50. I would summarize it as, you ain't seen nothing yet. You believe because I, because you, um, I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. Very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Where are your expectations right now in this world? What are they like? What, what do you expect? What do you expect for yourself? What do you expect? What do you expect for this church? for your family, for your marriage, for your future marriage, for your children? What do you expect for our troubled world, our broken world, a world still filled with racism and inequity? What do you expect? Has your, has your expectations gotten kind of stale? Has the sin of cynicism crept in? 
And has your lens gone from macro to micro? Jesus calls Nathaniel. And, you know, there, there's confusion over some of these references, you know, the angels the descending and ascending, but all biblical scholars end up at least alluding to and camping out in one story with this reference. And that's the story of when Jacob has a vision in Genesis 28. Clever preachers for the last couple of decades have named their sermons on this text Stairway to Heaven. Right? Because it's got... You know, he goes to sleep and he had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. It doesn't take a lot of steps to get to that title. Stairway to heaven. But, I mean, this is, I, I just joke to introduce that story, but basically what Jesus, if Jesus seems to be alluding at least to that story and then somehow placing himself as the Son of God in that concept or in that picture or in that experience... And what was that experience for Jacob except for just something that totally freaked him out and got his attention like nothing in his life ever had? I mean, you listen to him talk, it seems like he's just nuts. He just doesn't know what to do. Because God speaks to him after seeing that those angels ascending and descending and says who God is and God says he will be with him. And then it says, when jo- Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place and I, I was not aware of it. He was afraid, it goes on to say. And he said, how awesome is this place? Then he says, this is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. I mean, what do these things mean? But he's just saying them. They're just coming out. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and he set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel. That's just Hebrew for house of God. Though the city used to be called Luz. And when Jacob, then he made a vow saying, if God will be with me and watch over me on my journey, um, then the Lord will be my God, he eventually says. And he closes by saying, and this stone I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And all that, of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. He just is just blowing up with expressions of reaction to what has just happened. God has visited. God is here. God is real what do I do next? What do I, let's pour oil on that rock. You know, let's, let's give it a name. You know, like it just, he's going crazy. Right now, Nathaniel in, in this story is saying, you're the son of God, the king of Israel. And that it's almost like that's not quite exuberant and freaked out enough for the kind of things Nathaniel needs to expect as Jesus becomes a bigger deal and even a bigger deal and a bigger deal than he can imagine. And I say, look at your life, look at your church, look at your small group, look at your family, look at your relationships, look at your city, look at this world and crank up the dial of expectations for what's going to happen. Not through psychology or politics or your hard work, but through the Lord Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, the King of Israel. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we look to you utterly bewildered and confused because we don't control you. We are just called to follow you. But as we make our way through that, give us, give us focus, give us direction. Help us on our way. 
to know you better uh, and to follow you better. In Jesus' own name we pray. Amen.